This is DeRay Olalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 78. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7-Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Hey, what's up? What's going on, BTM Tribe? DeRay Olalaye here, and we're back for another episode, another installment of the Before the Millions podcast. On today's show, we are interviewing real estate investor, Mr. Tim Bratz. Tim started investing in real estate at the tender age of 23. And he started with credit cards, believe it or not. He started with a credit card that had, I believe, a $15,000 credit limit. And we're going to talk about Tim's journey from being a realtor to being a full-time real estate investor and how he was able to scale and build his portfolio. I think that this episode really highlights how you go from one property to the next, how you go from zero to one, how you go from one to two, how you go from two to four, how you go from four to six. And it's really going to highlight the compounding effect of getting started. And I mean, once Tim got to eight properties and then 16 and then 64, he eventually had all these properties and they added up to like three, 400 properties. And at this point, he was ready to trade in all of those properties for maybe one or two properties, but maybe they had 200 units per property. So we're going to walk through his scaling process. And today, I think Tim has well over 1,300 units and he attributes a lot of his success to a mastermind group that he decided to join. You know, before joining this mastermind group, he talked about how he was struggling to get over six figures or get past six figures. You know, he was hovering right around that $100,000 a year mark every year. And the minute he decided to invest in himself, he was able to, I believe, 3X that in the next year. And he was just like, wow, this is crazy. So I love that he's able to dive into that. And guys, as we walk through Tim's progression, notice how he's building a business around his lifestyle and not the other way around. So whether or not you're just getting started and you're looking to buy your first investment property, or you've been buying single family homes for the past few months or the past few years, and you're looking to scale and go get into the commercial space or get into apartments or go a little bit bigger, we're going to talk about that on today's show and talk about how to really take the next step, whatever that step is for you. Now, before we get into any of that, let's get into the tip of the week. DeRay's Tip of the Week. So today I decided to put a few things up for sale. One of the things that I put up for sale was an iPhone, iPhone 6 Plus, brand new, never been used, factory. And I put it up for sale for $215. When I got somebody that was ready and wanted to meet up to buy the iPhone, I met up with the guy and you know he gave me the money. I gave him the phone. He didn't really ask any questions. You know We ended the transaction and we got in our cars and we both went our separate ways. And 
through that interaction, I mean, I guess I'm kind of a trusting person because I didn't even really check the money. And it turns out that he gave me two $100 bills and a $20 bill. So I got to the light and I was like, well, I might as well check the money. Like I shouldn't be that trusting. I mean, he could have just got a brand new iPhone and I have no money. (laughs) So I checked the bills and they were real. So everything was good. So I drive up to the next light and I was like, wait, he gave me 220. I posted it for 215. So I hit him up and I was like, hey, you gave me 220. I was like, you want me to turn around? I can give you your $5 back. And he was like, no, it's okay. It's cool. And in my mind, I was just like, it's random. Most people that hit me up that day, they were like, hey, would you be willing to sell it for $100 when they clearly see the price is $215 for a brand new phone? And I just got a lot of people. I mean, and that's typically what you get, right? Most people want to bargain. Most people are trying to come out super on top in a lot of situations, regardless of if it's already a valuable deal or not, right? But in this is he knew the price. And even when we decided to meet up, I didn't expect for him to just be like, yeah, 215, okay, cool. Like I expected him to at least try to, you know, talk me down a little bit. But he was just like, no, like, okay, we can meet up at six and that's perfectly fine. And then when we meet up and he gave me 220 and I got in my car, he didn't say anything and he got in his car, like, where's my change or anything like that? You know, I played all that back in my head. I was just like, man, maybe he always intended to give me 220. I was like, that's just backwards. But through that random act of kindness, I was just like, man, like he, like, I just immediately wanted to do something for him. I was just like, you don't meet a lot of people like that. So I like reached out to him. I was like, Hey, I really appreciate it. I went ahead and went to his profile on the app that we used. It's called offer up. And like, I gave him a five-star review and all that stuff. And I was just like, man, like I just, I just felt the urge to want to do something for him. Like he was just being like kind for no reason. Right. Put me in such a good mood. And I was just thinking about tomorrow and ordinarily, like I would go volunteer tomorrow and I would go, you know, probably be on the way there thinking about work, thinking about business, thinking about this, that, and the third, what I'm going to eat later. And I was just like, man, like, I can't wait till tomorrow. Like I'm just in a giving mood. Like I just, hopefully like I pass by some people I could buy, you know, some food for on the way there. Like hopefully I run into somebody I can help. Like I was just thinking about different ways I can help on my way to volunteering. And I was just like, all of this is literally striving from this guy, just giving me an extra $5. And, you know, it wasn't like he was I mean, he was just getting off of work. He didn't know my situation. He sees me pull up in a luxury car. You know, he's driving a pickup truck. And yet and still, man, this man has like so much kindness to just be like super giving. And I was just like, man, that's that's just awesome. You don't meet a lot of people like that every day. So moral of the story, random acts of kindness go such a long way in the hearts of others. And you have no idea who you're affecting and what type of change you're affecting in their lives. I'm just like, tomorrow, I hope I can have that much of an effect on somebody's life as this man had on me today. I mean, it wasn't even anything big. Like the amount didn't matter. It was the fact that, I mean, it was just different, right? It was just not the norm. So I hope we can all take away something from that story. I personally was like, this is dope. I want to share this with my community. And that's what happened to me today. So tomorrow I'm going to be super present when I'm volunteering and not think about a million other things. I'm going to make sure that I, you know, pass it forward. Whatever I'm moved to do or give or to to help with, I'm going to make sure that I'm looking out for things like that because you never know whose life you can change in a drastic way. So let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. On today's show, I'm glad to welcome Mr. Tim Brox. Tim, how's it going today? Dude, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
Definitely, definitely, definitely. So let's maybe take it back to your earlier formative years. And what were you doing back in the day? What were you focused on? And then how did you slowly but surely start sending your sites to real estate? Yeah. So, you know, I got started in real estate. I was going through college in 2003 to 2007 when the market was booming. Everybody's making money in real estate. And as a young, you know, I was 20 years old or whatever at the time. And everybody's like, if you want to make money, get involved in real estate. So when I graduated from college, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally, my brother was living out in New York and he's like, Hey man, why don't you come and just, you know, live with me. And we were just kind of living the bachelor life out there. And I, I got a job as a real estate agent. So I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to get involved in real estate because that's what you know, motivated me to make money. And so I uh, became a real estate agent, but not for residential real estate. I did it for commercial real estate. Didn't really know what I was doing, but just kind of was watching some of the higher ups in the office lease out retail space and office space. And essentially I sat in, I closed my first deal, I don't know, probably like six months in that I leased this 400 square foot unit of retail space in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And 400 square feet, the tenant signed a lease of $10,000 a month with 4% escalations every year on a 12-year lease term. So I was doing all the math on this and I'm like, holy cow, this landlord is going to make almost $2 million for something he did one time 12 years ago. And the whole idea of passive income and residual income and you know, and then creating a lifestyle from that mailbox money really motivated me to learn more about the investment side of real estate. I realized that I was in real estate, but I was on the wrong side of the coin. I was brokering real estate. I needed to be owning real estate. So, you know, I moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, just for some better quality of life and weather. And when I was down there, I was 23 years old, didn't have any money, had about eight grand, you know, saved up. And I had a credit card with like a $3,000 limit. And I found, this is in 09 now, the market crashed and the cheapest house on the MLS was $24,000. And uh, I didn't have that money, but I called up my credit card company, asked them to increase my credit card limit to $100,000. They laughed at me, said, no, no way. You've had this open for like nine months. Get the hell out of here. You don't have any credit or anything like that. And so, uh, but they gave me a $15,000 limit, one five. So I was able to go in, make an offer on that $24,000 house. We went back and forth. I bought it for $14,000 put a couple thousand dollars worth of work into it. I did all the work. I did the paint. I'm Googling how to change out light fixtures, how to change out carpet, how to do the plumbing, doing the landscaping, all that stuff. And then uh, I didn't know how to sell. So I just kind of, you know, put out some signs and printed out some flyers, handed them out to neighbors. And I got one of the neighbors come by and end up buying the house from me from start to finish. It was like 75 days. And I made $13,000 as a punk 23 year old kid in the worst housing market in 80 years. And so it kind of, the bug bit me. I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm making money doing this. So I did it again, did it again, did it again. And eventually, you know, you get into wholesaling and you get into retail flips and you start meeting people who have money, but maybe don't have the time or don't have the knowledge on how to invest in real estate, but they can respect your hustle and that you know what a good deal looks like. And I just married up with a lot of those people. And I created joint venture partnerships where I was given up a significant portion of, of the equity, 50 to 70% of every single deal, just because I, I realized I need to get deals under my belt. You know, I need to like build up their resume. And so it allowed me to go make enough money to keep food on the table. And at the same time, build up quite a bit of a resume. Yeah. So, you know, eventually I met some people with more money and we kept on doing more deals. And a couple of those relationships went sour or one major one went sour. I had to liquidate about 200, about 150 units that I had. And, but it was actually kind of a blessing in disguise. And for the past three years, I've just been on my own. Uh, with my own team, you know, that I've built now over the past 36 months and uh, been buying apartment buildings. So I own, 
1,359 apartment units now in Ohio, South Carolina, Georgia, a couple of vacation rentals in Florida. Then I just bought my first building in Texas, man. Over by you. Nice. Nice, week. nice. I love that. I love that. And again, Craig, congratulations on that. Let's take it back to your broker days. I want to get a sense of the environment, Tim, because I think it's important to kind of talk about what you were going through, what you were thinking, and how you kind of stumbled upon this path because you came into real estate as a broker. Now, what was the mindset of the other brokers and the agents around you? Were they connecting the same dots that you were connecting? Were you looking for outside help to kind of figure out, wait, there's this, there's this whole other end of the spectrum where people are, are taking you know, their money, they're investing, and they're getting these, these, these returns that are crazy, and nobody in this industry is doing this. What was kind of the, the overall perception of being an investor from the broker standpoint, and how did you kind of not fit that mold? Yeah, I just, you know, I didn't really know any better. I came into this at you know, 21, 22 years old and just realized I needed to get, I wanted to get involved in real estate. And the easiest path of least resistance was getting my real estate license. So I just kind of fell into that. I I, uh, interviewed with a couple of brokerages. One firm hired me and uh, I did commercial because it seemed more exciting essentially. So got into commercial real estate and, you know, a lot of people there I realized pretty quickly, I was, I was probably one of the most ambitious people in the office. Um, there were other people who wanted to make money, but they didn't really want to build wealth. It was more about just getting rich versus building that legacy wealth or that kind of like lifestyle. And so, you know, I, I remember just canvassing neighborhoods when I was in New York City. And, and, you know, if you've ever been in Manhattan, pretty much everything ground floor retail, it's like a massive mall. Everything down the ground floor retails is or on the ground floor is all retail space. Anything can be leased out. There's, every landlord has some sort of retail or office space in their building that they need to lease. So I would just canvas neighborhoods. I walk up and down Broadway and First Avenue and Second Avenue and just write down addresses of vacant storefronts. And I remember doing this like on a Tuesday morning once. You know, it wasn't even summertime. It was like in the fall and it was a Tuesday and I was walking past a park and it wasn't like Central Park. It was one of these one-off parks that nobody should be at in the middle of the day on a Tuesday. And it was packed, or not packed, but there were a bunch of people just hanging out, reading a book and throwing a Frisbee and playing with their dog or playing with their kids or, you know, men, women, working age people like just hanging out. I'm like, there's got to be more to life than just trading your time for money and just tra- going down that transactional uh, path. And so, I started reading books like, you know, Think and Grow Rich and How to Win Friends and Influence People and The Richest Man in Babylon and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then uh, understood the difference between an asset and a liability and then getting, you know, assets to pay for your liabilities. And then I read another book called Automatic Wealth that was all about how to create passive and residual streams of income. And that stuff just resonated with me. And I always knew that I wanted to get involved in kind of those the larger passive streams of income, but didn't really know how to do that. And so that's why I got into the wholesaling and that's why I got into the flipping. And I think there's that a lot of people think you have to do that in order to go build up some cash reserves in order to buy uh, commercial real estate and apartment buildings and stuff. They think they have to have all the money. No, just like you go and raise private money for your single family deals. I do the exact same thing for my commercial deals. I bought 1400 units in the past 36 months and I didn't use a dime of my own money for any of it. You know, I I took, I got acquisition fees. I got on the refinance. I got a big, big chunk of refinance proceeds on all these properties. I have a cat, you know, significant portion of the cash flow on all these properties. I have partners in all of them too. So it's not like they're a hundred percent mine, but majority of it is mine. So, you know, I've been able to build teams and, and just not only I've been able to build a passive business that then invests in passive assets at the same time. 
So there's a couple layers there. So even if things hit the fan, you know, I can <laughs> still figure it out. You're thinking outside of the box because many people believe certain things need to happen or certain things need to be in place before they, be they can become a real estate investor. What separates the people who find success and who get success and who become real estate investors, because we're talking about people that have zero property, and then we're talking about the difference between those people and the people that just even have one. What separates those people is the fact that, not the fact that they have more money, but the fact that they made a decision. And that decision was to be a real estate investor. And, they were, and then once that decision is made, all the actions to follow to, to make sure that decision comes into fruition, that's what they do. And the people who don't become real estate investors, they never actually make that decision. I think fear drives a lot of people. And I think when people are like, you know, well, if I buy that apartment building, what if tenants move out? What if uh, we spring a leak? What if taxes get hiked up? What if the building burns down? What if, what if, what if? And that's what a lot of people focus on. And they focused on that. And I focused on the, what if I get filthy friggin' rich from this thing? What if I build legacy wealth from this? What if, you know, I can pay for the education for generations to come of my family because I buy this building? What if this happens? What if I have the lifestyle and, the, and the, that I, other people can dream of if I buy this? And that's what I focused on. Instead of the, the fearful what ifs, I focused on the faithful what ifs, you know? And it's not like fear and faith are the exact same thing. It's both believing in something that has not yet come to be. The difference is one's negative, one's positive. And the, the cool part about it is we get to decide whether we want to be positive or negative. So like, if you're going to believe in something that's not going to, that hasn't even come true that you don't even know is going to, going to happen or not, why would you be negative about it? Just choose to be positive about it and, and pursue that path. So that's all I ended up doing. I was just like, Dude, what? I mean, I kept my eye on the prize at the end of the road. I mean, I don't think there's any other industry that's as time tested as real estate, you know, has any other industry that has created more wealth than real estate over time. I mean, for, for millennia, for since the dawn of civilization, real estate has, has what's been the differentiator between noblemen and common folk. You know what I mean? It's like, so it wasn't like, is it going to work? Could it potentially happen? It's not like a technology that I'm trying to launch or anything like that, like a new, a new tech business. This is something that's time tested. I knew it could work if I just put my head down and didn't look left, didn't look right. And I just got to work. Yeah. I love that. And you know, you talk about the fact that you needed to get a certain number of deals or you felt as though you wanted to start ramping up the amount of deals you got. And I think this was right before you started raising money. So I want to talk about why you needed to get some deals and how that, I guess, uh, how that, went well or voted well for you and the fact that you started raising money from other individuals? Well, I think when you're new, you don't control the respect and that maybe you need in order to go and raise money or posture up with banks and posture up with lenders and, you know, be able to go around and puff your chest out a little bit. And so you need to be very generous to the people who are willing to invest with you and kind of take that risk. And so I, I was willing to give up a bunch of equity in my projects just to you know, get people to invest with me. So that way I had a track record. I had, you know, cause I was again, 23 years old when I bought my first property. I'm 33 today. So not a lot of people are going to invest tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars with some kid who's in their twenties, you know, especially with how, how scary the real estate economy was in 09, 2010, 2011, 2012. So I realized I had to be pretty generous it was easy to find deals, but it was hard to find money. So I need to be super generous. And then by giving up some equity, but I was able to do more deals 
by getting more deals under my belt, I could, it did two things. One, it, it gained a lot of experience for me. I dealt with insurance claims. I dealt with tenants putting holes in the wall. I dealt with eviction court. I dealt with, you know, crappy contractors screwing me out of tens of thousands of dollars. I've dealt with uh, break-ins. I've dealt with, you know, acts of God, all that kind of stuff that it's better to do maybe on, on smaller single family houses that are 10, 20, 50, hundred thousand dollars than it is to do on a multi-million dollar apartment building. So, you know, I gained a lot of experience. And then, uh, the other thing it did is, you know, again, it gave me that, that posture, that confidence that, Hey, if I'm, if I can do this with a one unit rental property, I could probably do it with a two unit rental property. And if I have two units, all I have to do is add a zero and I have 20 units and I can just add a zero to the other expenses that come with owning a rental property. And all it is, is adding extra zeros to it in order to get a 200 unit apartment. I, I just contracted 200 units over the phone yesterday. So, con, you know, the attorneys are drafting up documents and everything, had a conference call with the seller. And, you know, if you told me a couple of years ago, I'd be buying 200 unit apartment buildings in one fell swoop, I'd be like, oh man, you know, that's a pipe dream of mine. Yeah, hopefully one day. But I'll tell you, it's when you create that momentum and, and it's like, it's like working out, like it takes a long time for momentum to build up. And if you go to the gym every single day and sweat and your muscles ache and it's super painful and you're going every day for an hour or two hours every single day for 30 days straight and you're sweating, you're crying, it's bleeding, whatever. 30 days later, nobody can see a difference in your body. You probably can't even see a difference in your body. It's very disheartening because you can't. And then so you're like, all right, well, let me give it another 30 days. Then you go and you're pumping iron and you're, you're sweating and your heart's beating hard and you're going through all that pain. You're getting rid of the, uh, the weak muscle and building up new strong muscle and you do it for another 30 days. Maybe you can see some differences in your body now after 60 days of going through all that, all that struggle, but nobody else on the outside can. And it's not until 90, 120, 180 days in where you show up at a party and somebody's like, hey man, you look pretty good. You've been losing some weight. You look a little bit more trim now. It looks awesome. And you're like, dude, I've been working my ass off for the past six months and, you, and nobody's noticed anything. Like that's the same thing in business and in life. Like you have to put in the work day after day not get any sort of accolades for it. And I've had a lot of success, especially over the past 24 months, but man, I, I shoveled shit for eight years, you know, and people, nobody wanted to put me on podcasts at that time because I was, but I had the right mindset. I knew that I wanted to uh, get to where I am today. It's just, you got to have the faith that it's going to work out. It's going to just keep on working, keep on putting your head down. And um, again, real estate's time tested. So you got to put in that effort. And all of a sudden this, this compound effect will set in the snowball effect will set in. And then the momentum that you get is just, uh, it's remarkable. I had 400 units at this time last year. And I picked up over 900 units in the past 12 months. Just, and I'll pick up probably another 2000 by this time next year. So it's just, it's crazy how it happens. And it's like the penny that doubles every single day. If you double a penny every day for a month, you realize after three weeks, that penny's still only worth like a couple thousand dollars, like 15 grand. It's not until day 30 or 20, 29 that it actually surpasses a million dollars. And then day 29 is a million. Day 30 is I think two and a half million. Day 31 is like over $5 million. And all of that growth happened in the last 10% of the month. 99% of all the growth happened in the last 10% of the month. So it's, dude, I mean, that's, that's life, you know, that's exercise, that's relationships, that's wealth building, that's real estate, it's all that stuff. Like you just got to be willing to keep on putting in the work, realizing that it will culminate, it will pay off in the, in the end. 
So uh, have you, uh, and this was like probably like a year or two ago, but there was this kid on, I, th- I believe, Bigger Pockets, and maybe he was 21 or 22, and he closed his first apartment deal, and he was retired. Like, it was just like, it was like 100 plus unit unit building, and he closed his first deal. And I'd love to bring up that example, because, I mean, it just, it just took one deal. One deal for him mm-hmm. to financially free, for him to quit his job, just one deal. Pretty good deal at that. And I think about how expansive one's mindset needs to be. And how much goes into mindset? Like, I believe most of the journey is mindset. I believe that the- 100%, dude. I found that, you know, in raising private capital, you need two things. You need trust and you need respect. What are you really, really good at that people respect you for and trust you? You know, they they would trust you for, for being a fantastic operator, for going out and finding awesome deals, for going out and raising money, for, you know, overseeing the value add and the project management improvements, for uh, due diligence and your analysis of all the financial, like whatever, these are big deals and you don't need a hundred percent of a big deal. Like if you had 25% of a watermelon, that's more than a hundred percent of a grape. You know what I mean? Like because there's such, so much squeeze in that deal, there's so much juice in the squeeze that there's more juice in a fraction of that project than it would be in a hundred percent of a smaller project. So you can bring in people who are experienced in whatever facet their unique ability is and let them focus on what they're really good at. And you go out and do whatever you're really good at. And I think I had, I had success because I had a lot of small wins and instead of coming up to the plate and trying to get a home run, I hit so many base hits and base hit after base hit after base hit after base hit. And uh, if you got a team that hits a lot of base hits versus, you know, a team that has one or two home run hitters, the team that hits the base hits is always going to win. You know, it's just a more standard, trusted, true method. And so I hit a lot of base hits. I had a lot of small deals. I incrementally increased and moved up. But that's because I didn't know that I could just partner up with somebody like you or somebody like me who then could go out and raise all the money. And then I can go be an awesome operator for a 200 unit apartment building, or I can just be a a stellar uh, like wholesaler. And instead of taking a wholesale fee on it, just give me some, you know, give me 3%, 5% equity in the deal. I'll take that as my fee instead, you know, in order to start building up that, that long-term wealth. Like there's a lot of other stuff. I didn't know that people could sponsor loans for you, that there's people who would come in and sign on a loan and help raise all the money. I just did it all through just brute force and hard work is how I did all my deals. But I think I just, I did a lot of small deals and then I incrementally got bigger. I, I bought my first multifamily was a, was a triplex. Well, technically a duplex and I bought a triplex and then I bought an eight unit it was my first commercial deal I ever bought. And then I bought another eight unit and then I bought a 14 unit and then I bought a 23 and then a 31 and then my friggin' yeah, 31 burned down. Yeah. I see those. And wow. then I just kept that. And then I bought an 84 unit, you know, and then I bought another 60 unit and then I bought, and, and then what happened is like, once, and then I had all of a sudden a portfolio of 300 units. And when you have a 300 units, then you can go buy another 300 units yourself if you wanted to, or bring on some other people. Like I still partner up with other people to help raise money on deals because some people who that's the, all that they focus on. And so if they can do that, I'm cool with it. And it makes my life easier. And I can just kind of syndicate all the other players in the project. So, and I think, especially when you have a, a failure, um, not a failure, but just like you're deflated. You're so lifted up. And then all of a sudden just uh, taking the wind out of your sails after that didn't happen. I think it's important to go out and get some more wins. Just a, a couple, just easy wins, a couple quick build up the confidence. I think confidence is a big player that a lot of people don't talk about in business and in real estate. And 
you know, it, it, with a couple of fails, a couple or a couple of, uh, you know, bad phone calls, a couple of bad deals, a couple of like just rejection that can wear on you regardless of how successful you are, regardless of how confident you are. You need a couple of small wins in order to just keep on moving forward and then, and then, you know, have the confidence and have the audacity, I guess, to pick up the phone and then make another phone call and another phone call and another phone call. So, you know, I think, I think little wins are underrated and I think it, it plays a big role. I know, I know for me personally, if I'm having some struggles or if I get knocked down, you know, I just need a couple little wins, little victories, some positive feedback or something like that to kind of put that confidence back in me, whether that's doing another small deal or, you know, just interacting, going out to a networking event, just like, you know, letting other people talk and, and try to provide value and, and give. There you go, ladies and gentlemen, masterminded with Mr. Tim brought to himself. I love it. That was all <laughs> so valuable. Superb advice. Now, in the past five years, because we are working our way up here before the million story, in the past five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Probably joining a mastermind was a big deal. I felt super solo, super alone before I had a mastermind group that I plugged into. And I'm not talking like a, real estate investors associations are cool, but it's usually a lot of newbies that hang out there. You create some great contacts there, but for high level thinking, when I joined a mastermind three and a half years ago, it took my income from right at six figures, like I made like a hundred grand. I made two tweaks in my business and did a couple deals with people who were in that. And I made three and a half times as much money as I did the year before, you know? And so, and then it like, then my wealth just started growing and everything too. It was just a different level of thinking and, and different level of conversations that I was having that I couldn't have with people that I just grew up with, you know, that I had a common zip code with. Like these were people with a common future versus people with a common past. And by surrounding myself in that kind of a group and being able to talk in dollars and decimals and not being, you know, embarrassed or like hold offish on talking about quantitative, you know, it's not about bragging, it's about just quantifying a deal. It helped me really move forward. So that was a big, like a tangible thing that I did. I was paying $30,000 in order to join that mastermind. It was no joke. It was a serious commitment, especially because I made a hundred grand the year before. I'm like, dude, this is a third of my income, you know, but I got a 10 X return on that investment based on the knowledge, the experience, the resources that I created from, from that. So joining a mastermind was a big deal, but yeah, I mean like from a mindset perspective, probably just believing, you know, by doing a lot of these little deals again and having a lot of small victories, I, I had confidence that I can go do a big deal too. It was just additional zeros. You know, like I didn't have to, I, the only thing standing in my way of me doing a big deal was myself and my self-limiting beliefs. And um, if I got those out of the way, then sky's the limit. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I love your little tidbit on masterminding. The actual episode that came out, I believe today is Friday. So Tuesday, this Tuesday was almost solely on masterminding. And I love the concept and I love love that you're pushing masterminds because that is the single most, you know, it's not a word, but the single most bestest way to grow as an individual and to grow your business. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's fun. so I definitely recommend that. And let's get into some strategy. Let's talk about this business that, you know, many people want to build this, this real estate thing and, and how people are able to do this around a certain lifestyle and the lifestyle it maybe provides. I know that, you know, you love talking about developing passive and residual income that allows you to do what you want when you want and where you want. One wants to go about developing that passive income so that they can do what they want, when they want, where they want. How do they get started? What do they do? What's, what's, what's kind of like the, the, the first step? I think in real estate, there's two things that are always needed. One is good deals and two is money. And so if you can focus on one of those two things, 
you will always be able to get involved in a deal somehow. You don't need to be Superman. You don't have to be Wonder Woman. You don't have to have knowledge on how to do the entire deal from A to Z. You just need to be an absolute stud at either finding deals or raising money. Right now, finding deals is worth a lot. It's a lot easier to raise money than it is to find deals right now. Five years ago, different story. Really difficult to raise money. Very easy. I mean, all you had to do is go on the MLS and you could find any deal you wanted for pennies on the dollar. So, you know, I think times change and markets shift and you always need to find deals. You always need to raise money. So, if you can get good at one of those two things and just be an absolute ninja at that, you can get involved in any, any kind of deal. So, I'll give you an example. Like, I, like on this deal that I just bought in Texas, I have a good balance sheet. I can have, I can sponsor alone and I'm pretty good at raising money. These other guys found the deal. They did all the due diligence. They put up all the money for the earnest money. They paid for all the due diligence inspections and all that kind of stuff. They went through, got the contractor estimates. I connected them with my mortgage broker and they kind of worked on putting all the loan together. I showed up and they said, Hey, we need to raise $500,000. I made a few phone calls. I raised $500,000 for the deal. And then I jointly sponsored the loan as well. I have 25% of that deal. And that's because I got intro through somebody else. He got some equity in the deal too uh, for making the introduction, but I, pr- I probably could have gotten 40 to 45% of that deal just for raising money and sponsoring the loan. If I just would have raised the money, I'd probably still have 20% of the deal. You know, So that's just because I'm good at raising money. Everybody else is doing all the work and I'll get a piece of this deal and we'll pay this thing off. It's worth, let's say it's two and a half million bucks and 20 years from now, it's all paid off. And it's worth $4 million 20 years from now that increased my net worth by, you know, a million dollars for doing this one deal that took me a couple, a week or two of my time. So just by focusing on my unique ability and figuring out what I'm really, really good at, I'm able to get involved in deals and transactions that maybe I wouldn't normally be able to do if I didn't have the capability to do all, everything. So I would advise somebody to get really good at raising money, start hanging out with people who have money. Where do people who have money hang out? I don't know, the boat club, the golf course, the uh, dining club, car dealership. I don't, I don't even know. Like, I would just start hanging out with people who have money. I would hang out with entrepreneurs, not necessarily real estate entrepreneurs, but I get involved in like some other entrepreneurial groups of people who are launching products and have tech services and are really good at making money, but don't know what the hell to do with it once they have it. And that's where I raise most of my money from is I just go and hang out with groups of entrepreneurs, guys who are great at making money, but they don't know what, how to make their money work for them once they have it. So that's how I raise most of my money. And then for finding deals, I mean, you can Google search anything on how to find awesome deals and you got to be willing to do the work that most other people aren't willing to do. You know, a lot of people are lazy. A lot of people just want the low hanging fruit. And if you're willing to go drive for dollars, if you're willing to go knock on doors, if you're willing to pick up the phone and actually call landlords like nobody else is doing that. Everybody's just trying to send uh, direct mail and get their own phone ringing. Like do some more aggressive hunting versus just trying to put the lure in the water and wait for somebody else to come to you. That's not quantifiable. Like you can't, you can't build a business on that, you know, cause it's not predictable. So if you're making outbound phone calls, like dude, where do motivated sellers hang out if they own a rental property? I don't know, probably eviction court. I know, I know whenever I have an eviction, I get super pissed and I'm like, dude, why am I dealing with this stuff? I haven't made money in two months. I'm not going to make money for another three months. I got to pay to renovate the unit. I got to pay a leasing agent a fee. It's going to sit vacant for essentially six months and I'm spending thousands of dollars. Like I'm super pissed. Why do I do this? You know, eviction court is where we're pissed off. Motivated sellers hang out who own rental property. Are you going to eviction court? 
Are you going and passing out your business card to the attorneys in eviction court, to the management companies in eviction court, talking to the landlords, creating those relationships, like just figuring out who owns a bunch of rental property in that neighborhood. Go send them a frigging gift basket of uh, edible arrangements and say, hey, buying some stuff in the area. I noticed you own some property. Maybe there's some ways we can build wealth together. Hey man, thanks so much. Give me a call if there's anything I can do for you. Spend a hundred bucks and do that. The phone will ring every single time you send that. You know, and so if you can get those deals that nobody else can get, you're going to be able to get involved in projects. Somebody else will bring the money. Somebody else will get the loan. Somebody will also oversee the renovations and manage the property for the next 15 years. And you can say, hey, listen, I brought the deal. Give me, you know, what, what does a broker make? 3%, 5%. It's a smoking deal. Maybe you can even get 10% of that deal just for bringing the, the, the apartment building right now. And then all of a sudden you're completely passive. You did a little bit of work on the front end and you got 5% of, 10 different deals around town and uh, you can go lifestyle up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the very next piece we want to touch on because it sounds like in order to get started, you want to focus on two main areas. And I love that we don't break it down into five, six or 10 different areas. We're breaking it down into two main quantifiable areas. You either, you know, you either find a way to get the money, raise the money or find the deal. And if you can do one of those two things, I think you're going to be very powerful. So let's, let's talk about the lifestyle. I mean, real estate investing is, maybe a lifestyle business? What, is, what does Tim think about that? And how do people start to cultivate the lifestyle that they want through real estate? I worked hard, not that smart the first eight years. And I've been working a lot smarter the past couple of years. And so, I mean, I worked Saturdays, I worked Sundays, I worked every day. I mean, it's cool because it's a lifestyle where somebody's not telling you when you can go take lunch break, when you can go take a smoke break, when you can go, you know, take a leak when you can go like any of that stuff, you know, it's cool that nobody's like, I always had the freedom to do what I wanted with my time, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. Cause then there wasn't anybody telling me when I had to be at work, you know? And, uh, and all of a sudden you're, you're walking down and answering emails in your pajamas and your boxer shorts or whatever. And, uh, you're not really taking it that seriously. So again, it can be a blessing and a curse. And I worked really hard and, you know, could I work smart today if I didn't work hard? I don't know if I could or not. I think there's definitely like a price to pay. I think you got to go through some of that. But, you know, I mean, today I own rental property. I built a team from hanging out in masterminds and talking to other people who have built teams. And I figured out how to compensate these people. I screwed up a whole bunch along the way. I paid them in different ways and a lot of it backlashed and backfired on me. Fortunately, I got a great team that stuck with me even as we struggled on, on a lot of that stuff. And, uh, I have lifestyle now. Absolutely. I do. You know, I mean, like I, I came into work at 11 AM and I'll leave by 4 PM. So I don't really am in the office more than five, four or five hours a day. In the mornings, I time block. I don't take phone calls. I don't take meetings in the mornings. I hang out I, I, with my daughter, with my son. I have a three-year-old daughter and a one-year-old boy. And uh, so I hang out with them in the morning. I walk my dog in the morning. You know, people in my neighborhood probably think that I'm like a stay-at-home dad because I'm home all the time. And then uh, I'm taking my daughter to school, just hanging out around the house, helping out. And I get a workout in, read a little bit in the morning. And then I come and get cleaned up and come into work for a few hours. Knock out some emails, knock out some phone calls, do some Facebook posts or whatever. And then I'm, I hit the road by four o'clock every single day to make sure I beat rush hour and I'm home with the kids and the wife for dinner, family dinner. And I time block my evenings, five o'clock to, you know, essentially the end of the night or till 11 AM essentially the next day, actually, people know that they can't get a hold of me. And it's just like if you had an appointment, like we're recording a podcast right now, I'm not going to double book right now. This is time blocked. I'm not going to have another appointment while we're 
having this podcast. Same thing. Like if I'm going to spend time with my kids, I'm not going to like, I time block that time from five o'clock to 10 PM, let's say to spend with my wife and kids. I can't put another meeting in there. It doesn't even allow me to do that in my calendar because it's blocked out, you know? And, And I think people don't respect that enough. You know, we all say that we're building a business for our family, for our kids, for our wife, for future legacy. But I think the greatest indicator of your priorities is how you spend your time. And although a lot of people say that they're doing it for their family, they often neglect their family and they often neglect spending time with their kids and neglect spending time with their, their wife or their spouse. And I wanted to make sure that that wasn't me. I wanted to make sure that my priorities, my time dictated what my priorities actually are. And so I did that. And I wouldn't say I got blowback from people, but they're like, I tell that to people and they're like, dude, how do you get any business done? And like, what if you miss a phone call? What if you miss a deal in the evening? And it's actually counterintuitive. You'd think that like maybe you miss deals uh, because you don't pick up the phone after five o'clock or after like four thirty, I actually get more deals. People respect me more in business. People that know that I do that know that I have my priorities straight and that they know that like I'm a family man and like, and relationships are a bigger deal than just the dollars. And because of it, people want to do business with me more than, you, you know, the workaholic. So it's actually like, grown my business by spending more time with my family as crazy and counterintuitive as, as that sounds. My health's gotten better because I work out every single morning now. You know, my relationships are better. I'm hanging out with my daughter, taking her first day of preschool and, you know, play with my son and take my dog for a walk and hanging out on date nights with my wife and um, doing all that kind of stuff. And it makes you that much more, like if you only have four hours, five hours to complete an entire day's worth of work, you don't let people waste your time. People are the biggest waste of your time typically. Can I pick your brain? Can I take you out to breakfast? Can I take you out to lunch? Can you, you know, can you give me some feedback? And like, that's cool. Like we love giving. That's why we do podcasts. That's why we promote on Facebook and, and give content like that. But we do it in a smart way. Like you're doing it to the masses in a refined way by doing it through a podcast. And if I had, you know, grab coffee with every single person that ever wanted to grab coffee with me, I wouldn't have any time for my, for my life, for my wife, for my kids, for my business. And so, and the more you say no to other people, the more your yeses mean as well. So it makes it that much more powerful when you do commit to going out and matching up with somebody who are like, Oh my God, thank you so much for coming out and having lunch with me or, or meeting with me or taking the phone call. I know you're super busy. And so uh, again, it goes back to, you know, if you have five hours a day, you're super focused. You're getting done exactly what you need to get done. You don't let any distractions deter you from, you know, what your one or two goals are to accomplish that day. And you're just way more efficient. You don't let just like random time slip through the cracks. So it's, uh, uh, it's been a big deal, you know, for the, for the lifestyle stuff. I'm going down to Florida for almost two months. I'm going to see how that goes with my team. I did it for three weeks last year or earlier part of this year, I guess. And then, um, I'm going to do it over the winter time for another two months and see how the team goes on that front. And, uh, you know, just testing out all that, all that stuff. And then hopefully it's like six months after that. <laughs> nice, nice. Nice. I'm loving it. This is, this is the lifestyle design that we talk about. You being able to block out time for the things that truly, truly matter. I love that so much. And I normally ask people, you know, uh, in the past five years, what have you become better at saying no to? And instead of asking you that question, I want to ask you when you do say no, when you, you know, you, you, I mean, like you said, we're here to help as many people as possible. Like that's what we do. That's our bread and butter. Like that's what brings us fulfillment. And at the same time, we need to be able to guard our time. We need to be able to leverage our time to do other things. And it's so hard to 
constantly say no or constantly say yes and you battle with this conundrum of going back and forth and things like that but it sounds like you have a pretty solid system going of how you're able to help people when you're able to help people and if you're able to help people so when you do say no to coffee and things like that how are you still if you're still providing value how are you still able to provide value to that person you don't want to be an ass about it right no, for sure. And, and there were people that, that helped me out and sat down, grabbed coffee with me when I, got, when I was new and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And so I don't ever want to come off as the guy who's like, no, I'm, I'm too good to, to respond to you. Like I personally respond to every single Facebook message, every single text message, every single email. But you know, my business is pretty much automated. I have an acquisition team. I have a COO. And uh, now I have, I'm bringing on somebody to handle all the private money stuff. So I still do the marketing and, and the lead gen kind of stuff. Just you know, podcasts, and Facebook content, and um, fun stuff. speaking engagements and that kind of stuff. What's that? I said the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- I mean, that's, that's the stuff that appeals yeah, to me, wanted, appeals yeah, to my, exactly. my personality. You know, like yeah. my COO wouldn't want anything to do with being on a podcast. He yeah. loves spreadsheets and he loves organization and, and bullet points and all that kind of stuff. So that empowers him. It would drain him to be on a podcast like this. So again, it's figuring out your unique ability. I respond to everybody. I say, hey, listen, I appreciate it. Like, that's a great question. If it's a quick question, maybe I'll respond to it. But typically, I take a lot of my Facebook content and a lot of all my Facebook content's public. And then I take all the podcasts that I'm on or, you know, blogs that I write and stuff like that. And I transcribe it or I have it transcribed and put onto my website as well. So all my podcasts that I've ever been on are all on my website. You know, any sort of Facebook content and stuff like that on how to find deals or how to raise private money and and all that stuff is all on my website as well. And so a lot of times I'll just direct people. I'll say, Hey, that's a great one. Go watch this podcast. I talk about that on that podcast. Or uh, check out my Facebook page. Like back in March, I posted something about how to raise private money. You know, watch that video and I talk about it there. And so that way I can still give value without having to, you know, actually sit down and spend an hour, two hours with somebody one-on-one. The other thing is I, you know, I do coaching seminars too. So every about three months, about once a quarter, I'll do a seminar. And it's, again, that's pay to play. It's like a lot of people think like, you get rich off of doing seminars and stuff. There's a lot of cost and a lot of expense that goes into it and a ton of planning, not like a three day event where you work for three days and you don't like, there's a lot of stuff that leads up to all that stuff. But you know, the cost of like a mastermind or the cost to come out to a seminar or an event, it's not a cost to get in. It's a cost to keep low level thinkers out. You know, it's, it's, it's like to get around a certain caliber of individuals, it would be doing a disservice to the high level people that I would want in my mastermind group. If I let somebody in for a hundred dollars, like what kind of value is that going to actually provide? You know what I mean? So, you know, like, like we offer the pay to play, like if you want one-on-one attention, that's totally available. You got to come out to an event, you know, and if it makes sense, then uh, we could do a mastermind, you know, join the mastermind, all that kind of stuff. So we offer all that stuff, like from a high level perspective, but if it's, somebody new and they just need a little bit of, of content direction or something, I'll give them that, tell them to go and check out a podcast and check out a blog post or a Facebook live or something like that. So that way they can get the answers to what they're looking for, you know, or, or I'll say, Hey, listen, reach out to my acquisitions guy and he'll tell you exactly what we're looking for from like a deal standpoint, what qualifications for a deal would look like for us. And then just go out and try to find those deals. You find those deals we do a deal together and you bring it to me, I'll mentor you as we do that deal together too. It doesn't even cost you anything other than going out and finding a smoking deal and bringing it to me first. And then we can do a deal together. You can get wealthy, get paid on it as you're learning how to do this stuff. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. 
what is your favorite Before the Millions book? So a book that I always refer that a lot of people haven't read, you know, a lot of people have read The Think and Grow Rich and the How to Win Friends and Influence People and all those, is a book by Jim Rohn called 12 Pillars. 12 Pillars, Jim Rohn was the guy who was kind of like the foremost thought leader and he's the mentor of Tony Robbins and all those personal development speakers of today. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, but he's got a book called 12 Pillars. It's like 100 pages. It's a super easy read and it's uh, packed with profound principles on how to build a good life. And so I think that's an awesome book. Nice. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or a tool. Honestly, man, I'm not like... Uh, let me look at my phone. I don't really uh, probably into technology account. much. I do Excel spreadsheets for like my net worth and all that stuff. I use my calculator and I'm looking at my apps right now. I got, dude, you know, <laughs> ballpark MLB ballpark app, you know, <laughs> Facebook Messenger, Pandora. Listen to Pandora. You know, a Zillow app, and and I, I own some vacation rentals, so I'm usually tooling around on like vacation rentals and looking at some some cool houses and stuff on there for VRBO. So I'd say like VRBO. Nice. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? The amount of time I get to spend with my, my kids, watch my kids grow up, you know? I'm able to go and hang out with them. I, I figure like my kids aren't in school. So when they do go to school, I'll have eight hour days again. So I can go do eight hour days if I want to do eight hour days. But right now is the time that my kids are at home. And I read somewhere that like a father bonds most with their kids between the ages of zero to 10. And so I want to make sure I'm there for all that time. And, you know, building my business the way that I built it has allowed me to do that and be home in the evenings with them and play, be home in the mornings with them and play, be home all day Wednesday or all day uh, Saturday and Sunday. And I don't work on, on Fridays either. We do a uh, Friday family fun day. So we always, it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but we'll go to the park, we'll go to the library, we'll go to the zoo, uh, went to the museum last week. And uh, we just do cool stuff. We go out to, just going out to lunch, just doing something. It gets my daughter excited as a three-year-old being able to say, Friday family fun day, Friday family fun day, Friday family fun day. And then she gets to pick wherever we go. It's her decision. And it's a lot of fun, you know? And it shows it shows lifestyle too. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely the most rewarding. I love that. I love that. I talk about that so much on this show. So the listeners definitely know where you're coming from. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Yeah. So I know we talked about how much equity I gave up in my deals. Like I was giving up up to 70% equity in my deals early on in order to build a reputation, in order to uh, prove myself to some of those private lenders. And so that was a sacrifice, sacrificed a lot of money, I guess, in, in that front. I actually feel fortunate, you know, although I was in my twenties and I was working when other people were going out and partying and uh, chasing girls and all that kind of stuff. I was, I was at home, I was working and I didn't have to sacrifice time with my family, with my kids, you know, cause I didn't have kids. I didn't have a wife in my twenties. So uh, I got married 27 years old. I don't know. Hang on. Yeah. I'll figure that out later, but 20, 28, 28, I got married. And then, you know, I didn't have a kid until I was 30. So I've only had kids for, for three years now. And because I made those sacrifices on time and for Saturday, like, dude, I don't, I don't watch any TV. So that's something like you might say that's a sacrifice. I freaking hate TV anyways. I think it's absolutely toxic. The garbage that is put into your mind. Like I watch, I love planet earth and I like, I like that kind of stuff, but I think all those reality TV shows are just toxic. So 
I will not watch any of that stuff. And some people think that, you know, not watching TV is a sacrifice. I, I would never want to watch TV anyways. Yeah. So, you know, it's stuff like that, that is more just a mindset shift of that's toxic. I don't want to spend my time doing that anyways. Let me go in and read a book or something that's personal development or something that's just, you know, going to make me a better person overall. Nice. So, uh, yeah. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? You know, a lot of people were, were mentors of mine who wrote these, like a Jim Rohn, you know, that I never met in person, but some of the content, or a lot of the content that they've created have shaped my thinking and my mindset and my mentality on how I go about life, how I go about business. I think Jim Rohn is probably one of the biggest and most influential. Obviously, my parents were a huge influence. They gave me a lot of confidence and a very loving family. You know, I'm from a blue collar family. My dad was a cop. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I'm one of four kids, but it was always like, Timmy, you're so smart. You can do anything you want and da-da-da always gave me the confidence to go out and succeed. And there was always, I knew that I always had like an opportunity to pursue greatness because there wasn't the negativity at home. But, you know, I also know a lot of buddies who are entrepreneurs that are super successful entrepreneurs use that negativity at home and growing up and having coming from like a, not necessarily a loving home life and more of a broken family have used that as fuel to create super ultra success for them in their in their businesses. So, you know, I think you can be successful in, in both regards, but yeah, it, that was definitely helpful. I love that. Love that so, so much. Last but not least, Tim, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? I think it's self-limiting thoughts. I'll give you a quick story. A year and a half ago, well, a little over a year ago, I got a phone call from, a, I had a suite or I had season tickets with the Cavs and somebody from uh, the Cavs had a suite for the Eastern Conference Finals against the Boston Celtics in 2017. And so they gave me a phone call or actually, I think it was an email actually. And they said, hey, we got a, one more suite available for the Eastern Conference Finals. You can have it. Uh, you're guaranteed at least two home games and it's $30,000. And I said, who the hell would pay $30,000 to go to a basketball game? And I deleted the email and I sat back in my, in my desk chair and then I'm like, dude, that's exactly what a broke person would think. That's a broken mindset. That's a self-limiting belief. And, and when you say that you can't do something or like you get all negative about it, it shuts down your brain from thinking resourcefully about things. And so instead of saying, hey, I can't do that or who would do that or why would anybody do that? It was like, how could I make this happen? And when you ask yourself better questions, I alluded to this earlier, you get better answers. And so I said, how could I make this happen? And when you ask yourself better questions, then your mind starts turning and you think, well, how could I make it a business expense? Well, I, I should bring business people there. Okay. And then, and it leads you down this trail of asking more and more better questions and then coming up with better solutions. And again, being more resourceful, regardless of the resources that you have available, resourcefulness is the ultimate resource. It doesn't matter if you don't have money, if you don't have time, if you don't have knowledge, if you are resourceful, you can figure out a way to make that work. And so, by having a resourceful mindset, I think you can go and accomplish anything. So long story short, I, I made, a, I said, hey, what if I did a quick mastermind? Never did a mastermind before in my life. What if I charged 15 people, $2,000 a piece to come out to a game? And so I made seven phone calls. I said, hey, listen, we're gonna do a one day mastermind, go to a steak dinner, and then go, go watch the Cavs play Boston Celtics, the Eastern Conference Finals in a suite that's stocked with all sorts of drinks and food. You in? And I had seven out of seven people say yes. 
And I said, done. So I booked it. I put $30,000 on my credit card in order to book the suite, made the rest of the phone calls. I probably didn't make more than 25 phone calls. I got 15 people that committed to coming out to the event. That one mastermind with 15 people that are paid for the entire suite. And so it took care of that. And then I got another game because you get it for the entire series. So I got another game and I was able to just invite all my friends and all my family and I got to be the man for all these people that were able to come out and I was able to give that to my friends and family and stuff too, without having to charge them anything. And so it just, it was one of those things that resonated with me that like resourcefulness is the ultimate resource. And if you think in more of a thought provoking manner and you ask yourself good questions, uh, you'll be able to find answers and you'll be able to uh, solve any sort of problem. So yeah, if you can be a problem solver and critically think and be resourceful, I think that is the greatest characteristic that you can have in order to put yourself on the right trajectory to go in and be at the millions. Well said, well said. I usually don't retell too many stories, Tim, but I'm going to have to retell this story because that was a beautiful story. I mean, that <laughs> that's simply amazing. That is example can be applied in so many, so many, so many life situations. I mean, that's just perfect. So I'm glad you were able to share that with us. Having you on the podcast has been phenomenal. We've gotten so much value. I've gotten so much value. So I know the listeners have as well. If any of them want to reach out to you, connect with you, learn a little bit more about you and some of the services that you offer, some of the things that you got, you got going on in your company or your companies, how do people get a hold of you? Yeah, my website's cleturnkey.com. So it's like clevelandturnkey.com, cleturnkey.com. Uh, you can hit me up on Facebook. I'm always on there. I'm always, you know, trying to provide as much value as I possibly can in posts and Facebook lives. I'm doing walk arounds on my apartment buildings and talking about value add and how we raise money and all that kind of stuff. So hit me up on Facebook, friend me up on there, follow me. I, I post a lot of stuff on public content on that. And dude, I appreciate it, man. I, I love the, the dialogue we had today and I love what you're doing. I love the content you're providing and, and the value you're giving to people. You're changing lives. So thank you for what you're doing too. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit to work with the Before the Millions team, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. That's beforethemillions.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and we'll get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what is your cash flow goal? How much are you looking to make every month? Number two, your personalized investing strategy. And number three, the best way to get started using cash flowing rental real estate. Remember, starting and scaling your real estate investments and business doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We've helped clients all over the world start and scale their investing efforts to six figures and beyond while enjoying life and making the world a better place. To find out if we can help you do the same, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. I'm Dorel Lallier, and let's talk soon.